Today's reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. Be seated. Well, good morning, church. Good to have you here. Dennis, thank you for helping me with my water bottle this morning. It seemed to have a way of just kind of moving different places, so I appreciate your help. I don't know how many of you have ever been to an unveiling before, whether it's a, a statue that was sculpted or perhaps a, a painting that was painted, or maybe even a book that someone wrote and they were having like a book signing and just kind of unveiling it or revealing it to the public for the first time. Well, before those things are unveiled, they have lived quite a while in the mind and the heart of the person who created them whether it's a a painting or a statue or a book they've written or something else, it begins in a person's mind and in their heart and works its way out into something that they make and create. And so it's been there for quite a while. Well, Sharon and I have a piece of art that I'd like to unveil this morning. I think this is our first unveiling, isn't it? Yes, our first unveiling. Um, One of her aides had a kind of a uh, uh, end-of-the-year retirement party for her since she is retired now, and my full-time wife. Oh, what a joy. <laughs> yeah, Lord help us. Okay, so anyway, at that, I think it was at a place called Board and Brush on Main Street in Greenwood. Maybe you're familiar with it, but you go in, and you get a board, and you have different, uh, you know, things that you can put on it in terms of stain and other things. But anyway, <laughs> we we created that together. And so, but what's on the board is something that has been really in our hearts and our minds throughout our lives. It's just something that God placed there and something that he has nurtured and developed within us. But it's been hanging above our fireplace, so a few people have seen it. But this is the first unveiling. And so I now unveil to you our work of art. It says, together is our favorite place to be. And that's true of our family, and it's also true of our church family. Together is our favorite place to be. Wherever that place might be, if we're together, then we like that. 
Well, the book of Revelation does the same thing. It basically reveals the eternal plans and purposes of God for the church and for the end times. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. But we better pray first, I think. Lord, thanks for the morning. And uh, thank you that you have unveiled yourself in the person of Christ who came and walked among us and showed us what God the Father is like through God the Son. And Lord, thank you that you have revealed, you have manifested your, your will and your purposes for the church age as well as the age to come. And that this book that John wrote called the book of the Revelation uh, has all sorts of good truth and promises that we need to have, especially as we go through difficult times, especially as we are patiently enduring things, difficult things in our life. As we think about the persecuted church and the church that is going to be persecuted during the end days, Lord, this is uh, relevant for us this morning. So speak to us. Reveal your word to us. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds and let us hear what the Spirit is saying. I ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you will, open up your Bibles or your phones or tablets to the book of Revelation. Revelation actually just means unveiling. That's what it is. It's an unveiling of God's mysteries that perhaps have been talked about a little bit in the Old Testament prophets and prophecies, but, but now Revelation brings it more to light and gives it a chronology. And so a lot of those mysteries are being unveiled through this particular book. And basically the book is about Jesus Christ. It's, it's a vision about Jesus Christ in all of his glory as King of kings and Lord of lords that we sang about this morning. So if you will, look at verses 1 and 2. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 of the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, that's the apostle John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So this revelation is about Jesus Christ, and God the Father gave it to him. He, showed it, he gave it to his angel. The angel gave it to the apostle John, and then the apostle John gives it to these seven churches that are being written to, and to us as well. That's the, how it took place, the, the revealing or unveiling. All right, look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So this book promises a blessing to those who will read it, who will hear it, who will proclaim it, for the time is near. Well, what, the time is near for what? Well, we'll find out in just a minute. Go to verse 4. John said to the seven churches, as he says to us, that are in Asia. Well, where is Asia? Well, that's Asia Minor. We got a map up here I think we can pull up. Asia Minor is just western Turkey, and you'll kind of, it's a little bit blurry, but in the green there, you'll see those seven churches that we're going to read about in just a minute. Ephesus, Smyrna, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So this is modern-day Turkey, then called Asia Minor, and those are the seven churches that are being written to in this book. Thank you, Kev. All right, let's read on. Grace to you and peace from him who is 
who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on the earth. All right? So, grace and peace from whom? Well, first of all, from God the Father, and then from the seven spirits. Seven, remember, uh, represents completion or perfection, so we're talking about the Holy Spirit, all right? So grace and peace from God the Father, grace and peace from the Holy Spirit, and then grace and peace from Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the whole Trinity, the whole Godhead is involved here in offering you grace and peace. And by the way, in the Bible, you always see grace and peace in that order because without God's grace, you can't have peace. You can't have peace with God, and you can't have the peace of God without his grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. It's always in that order. All right, reading on. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And now verse 7, which is basically the theme of the book of Revelation. Behold, he is coming. Wow. Wow. If you just remember that this morning, that would be good. Behold, he's coming. Jesus is coming back. That's the theme. He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of, of him. Even so, amen. So here's a couple of other verses that we might want to consider this morning from the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 30 to 31, sometimes called the Olivet Discourse because it was given on the Mount of Olives. And this is talking about the end times. So if you want to read just a couple chapters about end times, just go to Matthew 24 and 25. Of course, I'm going to recommend that you read the whole book of Revelation because I'll be finishing it up in August. So if you want a good challenge, uh, read through that a time or two. Matthew 24, 30 and 31 says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. Now those of us who know Christ before that have already gone to be with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So this is talking about those saints who are still living at that point in time, that they'll be the elect, those saved during those seven years of tribulation, the Lord will gather at that point in time. But he's coming on the clouds. And uh, then in Acts chapter 1, Luke writes about the ascension of Christ. He says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men, probably angels, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And how did he ascend? He ascended in the clouds, and so he is going to return in the clouds with power and great glory, according to Matthew 24. Now, this was given on, on the uh, uh, Mount, um, Mount of Olives, and so some people think it says that, well, that's where he ascended from the Mount of Olives, so that's where he's going to return, but it doesn't really say that. It doesn't say that he's coming to the exact same place, but it says he's coming in the same way on the clouds. 
Now, go ahead and turn, if you will, to John chapter 14, because this is a chapter that talks about the return of Christ, and it gives us really a lot of comfort. Not only talks about him returning, but it talks about him receiving us to himself, that where he is, we might be also. So look at John chapter 14. And I just want to read a few verses here in John chapter 14, starting with verse 1. Again, we're talking about the Lord coming back. Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples. He wants them to know that it's going to be sad, yes, when he goes away, but he's got purposes and plans for them beyond that. So he wants to comfort them in this, and he wants them to be able to recall these words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. By the way, this is a passage I'll use often at, at uh, uh, celebration of life services for people. Uh, this is a good passage for that. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. There it is again. I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And so Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So, yes, Jesus ascended, but he promised his disciples that he's coming back. And he has a place prepared for them. And so they can rejoice in that, even though they might be going through persecution and difficult times here on earth. And generally, I mean, it's a pretty common thing that most of us at any given time are wrestling or struggling or battling with something. I mean, we live in a fallen world, you know, with fallen people, fallen minds, um, bodies that fall apart. I mean, there's generally some type of a spiritual, emotional, mental, physical, relational conflict going on within each of us. And Jesus just says, look, though, in, you know, in the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And he's coming back and will be more than conquerors with him as well. So let's go back to Revelation 1-7, because this not only provides the theme of the, of the book itself, that Jesus is coming back, but it also gives us one of the purposes for the book, and that's to bring comfort to persecuted Christians because that's who John is writing to. The people in these seven churches are facing some persecution, and so he's writing to let them know and to comfort them and remind them of Christ's ultimate victory over Satan and the believer's reward for continuing to follow him and not giving in to the temptation to give up when things get tough. And we may never say to anybody, well, I'm giving up on Jesus because things are tough and he's not answering my prayers. No, but we may pull back from other believers. We may not be out there using our gifts like we should. We may not have the love, joy, and peace that the Holy Spirit brings when we're on fire and, and really serving the purposes and plans of God in our life. So this book offers a lot of warnings. It talks about judgment. It talks about quit being a slackard and, you know, get out there and use your gifts. But it also brings great comfort in the fact that Jesus is coming back, and we can look forward to that.
because nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Uh, on the uh, first, my first trip to El Salvador with Joni and the group a couple years ago, actually about a year and a half ago, I made this t-shirt, but sure, this t-shirt because I thought, you know what? I don't speak Spanish. I mean, C is about it for me in Spanish. That's about it. That is Spanish, right? C, yeah. We is French. C is. <laughs> so I made this shirt up just as a, a witnessing tool, and if you can see on here that you know Jesus, Jesus came to Earth. He was born to die, and so he died on the cross. He was buried in the tomb, rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. God sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and then one day Jesus is coming back. And so that's basically the gospel right there. That's the story of of Christ, his redemptive story. All right, let's go to verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is... Right now, that's present. Who was in the past and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, Alpha and Omega are the first and, and last letters in the Greek alphabet. And so what Jesus is saying is that he's the beginning, he's the end, and he's everything in between, basically. He is our all in all. Verse 9. I, John, and this is John the Apostle, by the way, who wrote the Gospel of John and also the three letters of John, and this was probably written in about 95, 96 A.D., and so John is fairly old. Uh, he is the only one of the original 12 who weren't, persecu- who weren't uh, martyred, all right? But he is exiled on an island, probably working in mines and, and, you know, pretty hard labor. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, I'm your partner in this tribulation. In other words... I'm going through what you're going through. He's identifying with them and just saying, I know, how, I know what you battle. I know how you're feeling. I'm your partner in tribulation, but I'm also your partner in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And says he was on the island called Patmos, which is pretty close to Miletus. It's, it's fairly close to Ephesus because John pastored in Ephesus, so just 30, 40 miles from there out to sea. I was on the island called Patmos. Why was he there? On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was exiled because he was proclaiming the good news of Christ and teaching the word of God. He says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. What does it mean to be in the Spirit? Well, it just means to be completely controlled by the Holy Spirit. And then on the Lord's Day doesn't necessarily mean Sunday. I think it's talking about that he was given this vision of the day of the Lord, which is the Lord's return. He was in the Spirit, and God gives him this vision of the day of the Lord when the Lord is going to return. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, sometimes I've been accused of being a loud mouth. But in this case, it's a good thing, the voice of a trumpet. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, the churches we saw up on the map, to Ephesus and Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. All right, so 
Kev, can you bring that map up just one more time? I just want to say something real quick. Oh, that's good. Yeah, right there. You might notice that these seven churches start with Ephesus, and they kind of move in a clockwise direction there. So Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. And by the way, those churches weren't chosen because they were largest churches or regional churches or anything like that. They were chosen because what was going on in those churches represented the gamut of what Jesus needed to say to the church in general. And so as we take a look at the, and sort of summarize what Jesus is saying to each church, I think you'll see that it's really relevant for all churches to hear these commendations and these condemnations and these exhortations and promises that come as we overcome some of these things that we're struggling with, all right? All right, now verses 12 through 16, we're going to get a vision of the glorified Christ. Keep in mind that John, Peter, James, and John, the three disciples, sort of the inner, uh, inner circle of Jesus' uh, disciples, they've already seen a little bit of the glorified Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, all right, when Christ was a dazzling white and, 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 and met with uh, uh, Elijah and Moses there. So they've already seen a little bit. Now they're going to get even a more clearer picture of who Christ is in all of his glory. Look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars from his mouth, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Wow. <laughs> I'm sure reading it doesn't compare at all with seeing it and actually being there. But first of all, we see that the description that Jesus is dressed like a king. That's how he comes in his second coming. He comes as king of kings and lord of lords. In his first coming, he came as a prophet. And in heaven, he serves as our great high priest. In the second coming, he comes as king. So the three offices that Jesus had, prophet, first coming, high priest in heaven, and then king, prophet, priest, and king, in that order. His white hair represents wisdom and purity. His blazing eyes represent or symbolize uh, discernment and judgment. His bronze feet means that he's going to trample his enemies completely. And a voice like the roar of many waters and the sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth just indicate that his words are strong and powerful. And what he says goes. What he proclaims happens. Uh, Here from Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Wow. God's word is so alive and so powerful that it can penetrate the very depths of your spirit and your soul. 
It can know the thoughts and intentions of your heart. That's how powerful the Word of God is. Verse 17. This this is a proper response we see. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. What's that song by Mercy Me? Oh, if I could only imagine how sometimes we don't really know how we're going to respond when we see the face of Jesus or we're in his presence. We might be shouting up and hooping and hollering or we might just be falling at his feet and can't say a word. But Jesus laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. You know, sometimes when people say, well, what's the difference between Christianity and this religion or this cult or this religion? I said, well, my Savior's alive. How about yours? Jesus is alive forevermore. And he says, I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, he holds our death and our destiny in his hands. He is in control of everything. He's sovereign Lord. And then verse 19, we actually see the outline of the book, okay? So look at verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. That's what we've been talking about in chapter 1, the things that we have seen. Those that are, all right, and that's talk, that'll be in chapters 2 and 3, which we'll discuss in just a minute, and that's about the churches, the church, that's the present at that point in time. And then the last part of of the outline is, and those that are to take place after this, so chapters 4 through 22 is what we'll look at next month. And pray for me, because I'm not sure how I'm really going to cover chapters 4 through 22 in just a three-hour sermon. It's going to take longer than that. By the way, we were not going to let you know when I'm preaching that, by the way. It would just be a surprise, or else probably not many people would come. So what you've seen... Those that are right now and the things that are to take place after this. That is the outline of the book. So let me encourage you to keep reading this book in the next few weeks. Verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, angels can also be translated as messengers. So whether, actually, whether these are actually divine beings or leaders of the church or whatever, the, the, the comforting thing is, that, they're in the, in, is uh, that Jesus holds them in his right hand. That's the comforting thing, that whether it's the angel of the church or the pastor of the church or leader of the church, whatever it might be, Jesus is holding them and controlling them, all right? Now, I want to look at the seven letters, but we don't have time to look at each of them individually, so I'm just going to kind of summarize what we find. So I want you to think about this fact that these churches represent churches that have existed since the church began and throughout the church age. So the things that we're going to talk about, those things they did right, those things they did wrong, the actions they needed to take to correct themselves— those are all things that apply to the, to the churches today. They apply to Franklin City Church. So here's some general observations, all right? First of all, their messages of Jesus to the seven churches, which represent really all churches. 
Jesus has something against five of them and nothing against two of them. He finds something good in six of these churches, but nothing good in the seventh. The letters in general have the following things in each of the letters. First of all, there's a description of Jesus that many times follows what we just read in chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. Some of those same things will be at the introduction of each of these letters. Then it has something that the church is doing right, something the church is doing wrong, a warning to repent and to change, and then a promise of blessing to those who do change and who overcome and conquer whatever it is that Jesus is not pleased with. Uh, The seven churches have existed throughout the church age, and all of them exist today. So these letters are very relevant to Franklin City Church. So first of all, here are some of the descriptions of Jesus that you find in these seven churches, which really establishes his authority to be the one speaking to them, to speak truth and to tell them, you know, what God's plan and purposes are for the church. First of all, he holds the stars or the angels in his right hand, and he walks among the lampstands. And who are the lampstands? The churches. Jesus walks among the churches. I'm sitting thinking about that, that comment or that, uh, that particular uh, part of the passage and during the week, and I'm thinking, wow, I think Jesus must be somehow walking among us every Sunday. That's a beautiful thought, to to think that we're here to worship him and praise him, and he's here receiving our worship and our praise. And he's he's here as, as the great high priest praying for us that we might receive his words, that we might open our hearts and let him change us. But just picture him walking among us when we gather. It says that he is also the beginning and the end, that he died and came to life, that his words are living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. His eyes are like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze. He has the seven spirits of God, which means he has the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He is holy and true, and he has the key of David. It's an interesting statement. I have the key of David, which I think just means that he has spiritual treasure. He opens and no one shuts. He shuts and no one opens. In other words, he is in control. Praise God, he's in control. And he is the faithful and true witness. He is the amen. He has the final word. Let it be so. Amen. So that, that's the description that we see in these seven letters. Now, here's what's right about the churches. Let me share with you the things that Jesus commends these churches. First of all, they condemned false teachers. They stood against false teachings, stood against false teachers. And they also stood against what's called class Christianity, where some people in various offices, whether it be a pastor or elder, evangelist, whatever, would be elevated above everybody else in the church. They stood against that, which we stand against that as well. I'll talk more about that in just a few minutes. They exercised patience and suffering. That's hard to do. When you're suffering, don't you just want it to leave right away? You want the issue to be resolved like like that quickly? 
But these churches were being persecuted in different ways. Many of them endured, endured that with patience. God has a purpose for difficulties in our life. And one of those things that we get from that is learning to be patient no matter what the circumstances might be. As you get older, you begin to accept that more, and you begin to find really peace in that. Because I think when you're younger, at least this was true for me, uh, I really kind of thought I could correct, change, make things the way I wanted them to be if I just worked hard, hard enough at it. But as you get older, you begin to realize that, man, I was just, I was just treading water. I was pushing against a stone that wasn't going to budge. I needed to get on my knees a little bit more often and let God be in control. They, they didn't deny their faith, and they stood against satanic worship. Their works of love, faith, service, and patience were increasing. It didn't just say that their love, faith, and service were increasing. It said their works of love, faith, service, and patience were increasing. Just as James says, faith without works is dead. So the things that were growing in them were being expressed out of them with their family and friends and in their community. And Jesus commends that, that what I'm doing in your life, you're allowing that then to be a blessing to other people. Sort of the, the Old Testament concept with Abraham, blessed to be a, a blessing. They were growing in that way, increasing. Some of the people exercised faith and were overcoming the deadness of the church at Sardis. Churches, uh, the church at Sardis uh, thought they were alive, but Jesus says, no, you're dead. But then he says later, there are some that are not dead there that have come to life despite the, the overall deadness of the church at Sardis. They were faithful in taking advantage of the open door of ministry. When God opened a door, they didn't, they didn't sit back and say, well, that sounds a little risky. Or that's, we're a small church. We can't, we can't do that. But this church, when there were open doors there, they took advantage of those open doors and they, and they stepped forward in faith, trusting God to give the time, the money, the energy, whatever it might take to accomplish that ministry. Now, Jesus had nothing good to say about the church at Laodicea. He had nothing good to say. Yes. Now, the trouble with this is that if you look at these seven churches, some people like to say that those represent periods of church history as well, and that we are living in the church of Laodicea time. And I think also if you take a look at the church in America, for the most part, just in general, you might see some of these things. So go ahead and turn to chapter 3. I just want to read this. God impressed me that we should read this about the church at Laodicea. Chapter 3, verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. And by the way, two different towns, Hierapolis and I think Colossae, one had uh, cold springs, the other one had hot springs, which were very useful. But by the time the, the, the coldness and, and the hot got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. So that's just sort of the, the picture he's painting here. 
He says, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, listen to their arrogance. You say, I am rich and I've prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And sometimes we use that as an evangelistic verse. But this is really a verse to a church who we hope many of them are already saved, that they have come to Christ by faith. But here's a church who shut the door and locked out Jesus. So Jesus is having to stand on the outside of the church and he's knocking and saying, can I come back in? I mean, that's how bad it had gotten. But they were so self-sufficient that they didn't need Jesus. They locked him out. Definitely don't want to be the church at Laodicea, no. So going on with some things that Jesus commented about the other churches, about things that were wrong, all right? The church at Ephesus, for instance, they lost their first love for the Lord and his word. They had head knowledge, and they were busy working, but there was no heart. There was no passion or compassion, no relationship with Christ. And Jesus just says, hey, you got the theology down, and you're busy doing things, but I think you've kind of lost the reason, the motivation, where that origin needs to be in terms of your love for me, your relationship with me. Uh, Folks, churches get there. Churches need to hear that. Do we need theology? You betcha. We need to know what God's Word says. Do we need to be doing the works that, that prove our faith? Yes. But if we're not doing it because we're madly in love with Jesus, then we're just a social club trying to do some good deeds. This is a real warning to every church out there, to every one of us. Make sure you're falling in love with Jesus every day. Let that be where your day starts and go forward in, in that love, his love for you and your love, your love for him. Some churches were practicing sexual immorality and idolatry. They had created two classes of believers, like I mentioned a while ago, where sort of a, a pre, an order of priesthood or something like that to where, you know, this, this, this group is way above the other group because they're called of God and they're special. And, and, you know, the reformers had to rebuke that. They had to confront that. And that's where the whole concept of the priesthood of the believers comes from. Every one of us who knows Christ and has the Holy Spirit is a priest to God. Look back at chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6. He has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. 
we are all ministers of Christ, in other words. And they were trying to create classes or levels of Christians. We're all brothers and sisters. We have one leader. We have one Father. We have one Savior, and that's Jesus. They also, some, some churches practiced sexual immorality and idolatry, and some tolerated those who practiced sexual immorality and idolatry. And what is idolatry? It just means that you have an idol. You have something that you cherish more than you cherish, cherish Christ. It's what we call idols of the heart. And that's what idolatry is. It doesn't have to be a little statue that you're sitting and worshiping before each day. It can be anything that takes the place of Christ in the center of your heart. That's idolatry. And so, again, it's real important that we push away those things and allow Christ to come in and and take that center place in our life. Some had solid biblical doctrine, but there was no spiritual vitality. This is why I love, you know, what, what Joshua and Seth do in terms of helping to lead us in worship. And by the way, worship is more than just singing, right? I mean, worship is everything that we do. But there has to be that spiritual vitality. Again, it originates with that relationship with Christ, spending time with him on a daily basis. See, when we come together on Sunday morning, you shouldn't come in here and necessarily get filled up. You ought to come in here filled up and then overflowing on one another. And then we leave, you know, with our socks. Our, we, our socks have been blown off. How's that go? Your socks have, is that how? Well, anyway, we, we leave here with no socks on and our hearts so full that we just don't know what to do. I mean, that's the way Sunday mornings ought to be, but it can't just happen from the preacher on Sunday morning or the worship leader. It has to, we have to all bring Jesus in with us, and then we overflow on one another, and it's kind of like we just walk out of here with our hands up thinking, ah, oh, Jesus, you are so good. Thank you for my family. Thank you for the body of Christ. Some were self-sufficient. They were rich in worldly ways, but they were spiritually poor, blind, and naked like we read about in Laodicea. By the way, Jesus found no fault with the church at Smyrna and Philadelphia. He found, he found nothing to really condemn them on in terms of their actions. He basically just said, keep doing what you're doing. You're, you're doing well. And, uh, you know, I'd like to see Franklin City Church be one of those churches. So let's just, let's just keep moving forward. Now, here's the action that Jesus gave to these churches to correct, to repent, and to correct the things that were doing, they were doing wrong. The, first of all, the church at Ephesus, he said, remember your first love, repent, and then return to me. Remember where you came from, what it was like when you first came to know me, and we walked and went everywhere together. You know, we were close like brothers. Remember that. Repent because of where you've allowed yourself to go. And then return to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. You know what's going to happen if they don't do that? Jesus says, I'm going to remove you. And what does that mean? Loss of salvation? No. It just means that church, the effectiveness of that church, perhaps even the gathering that church just kind of like on that show Survivor where they snuff out the uh, little things they carry around. Sharon always hates it when I bring up shows. But anyway, Jesus said, I'm going to snuff you out. I'm going to take your light out if you don't do these things. Why do churches fall apart? Why do churches split? 
because they're not practicing the things that God wants us to have within the church. Jesus says he'll build his church, but he also warns us that if we don't continue to go back to him and make it about him, then he's going to take us out. He says they're not to fear suffering and death. Why? Because the crown of life is coming. Yeah, there's tribulation now, there's persecution now, there's hard times now. You have to exercise patient patient endurance, but the crown of life is coming. Keep working, keep serving, keep loving. Do all of those things. The crown of life is coming. He says there to repent and to clean up the church or judgment is coming. To repent and hold on to the words and the works of Scripture. Don't just hang on to the words of Scripture, but hang on to the works of Scripture as well. All right? They're to revive the spiritual life they've lost. They're to continue to do what they have been doing and to hold fast. They're to seek spiritual wealth, not material wealth, but spiritual wealth in Christ, and ask the Holy Spirit to give them eyes to see the truth of of God's Word. Now, here are the blessings that were promised to those churches as they continue to conquer and overcome. They'll experience life in the paradise of God, which is heaven. They won't be hurt by the second death, which is the lake of fire. They'll see God provide for them, and they'll become new creations with new names. Do you realize if you don't like your name, good, good news here this morning, you're going to get a new name. <laughs> They'll be given authority over the nations and rule with Christ. That's amazing, I think. And it says we'll also be given Christ himself, the bright morning star, which is the best gift of all, that will be, get, that will be given Jesus in his fullness and glorified state. We'll be clothed in white garments, which represents our salvation. Uh, we'll be made pillars in the temple of God, and we will never leave God's presence. That's amazing. God's name and Christ's name will be on us, by the way. We'll be marked as belonging to them. And we'll sit with Christ on his throne. Sometimes as I watch my grandkids, whether it's, it's Grammy and I or, or, or our kids or our you know, daughter and son-in-law, Sometimes the, the kids will think it's a big deal to be able to come and, and, and sit with, with Pappy or Poppy beside him on a couch. Just think what it's going to be like to, to sit on the throne of God with God our Heavenly Father. Wow. i got to get better shape so I can run fast and beat some of you there that are trying to get there. One thing Jesus says to all of the churches in every letter He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Everybody got an ear here this morning, maybe one or two? We're to hear what the Holy Spirit says to the churches. So let me ask you a few questions here as we kind of wind it down. What's the Spirit saying to you? Are you listening to the Holy Spirit? What do you think the Spirit's saying to Franklin City Church? As he speaks to you, he'll speak to you about our, our corporate group as well. Will you read these first three chapters and pray and listen to the Spirit? Read the letters yourself this week if you haven't had a chance to read them. Read them and pray and listen. 
And then share any insights you get with, with your spouse or a friend or your city group. Uh, begin to talk about some of these things the Holy Spirit is doing. And then will you repent and respond to the words of Scripture and the promptings of the Holy Spirit? See, I don't think God's really too interested in speaking to us unless he knows our heart is ready to respond to what he says. I mean, sometimes in his mercy, he still will, even if our heart's a little hard. But most of the time, he's interested in speaking to those who are ready to not only hear him, but obey him. So in closing, just consider these thoughts. At his first coming, Christ came as a suffering servant. At his second coming, he's coming as king of kings and lord of lords. At his first coming, he came lowly and meek. At his second coming, he's coming with fire in his eyes and a sword in his mouth. At his first coming, he's coming as a lamb to be slaughtered. He came as a lamb to be slaughtered. At his second coming, he's coming as a lion to rule the world. At his first coming, he entered the world silently. At his second coming, it says, every eye will see him. At his first coming, he came as a man of sorrows. At his second coming, he will come as the glorious king. The king is coming. That's the theme of Revelation. Christ is coming. Are you ready to behold your king? Does he have your heart? Have you received his gracious offer of salvation? If not, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Open your heart. Receive Christ. Ask him to come in. Take control of your life. You'll never be the same. And also, do you long to hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Because really, that's what these letters to the churches are all about. Is will you repent? Will you remember from where you've come? Will you repent? Will you return to me? Will you be about the works that I want you to be doing? So that when we do see him, when he returns or we go to be with him, he can say to us, well done that good and faithful servant. And I'll close with Revelation 1.3, which we read earlier. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the, pro- the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, For the time is near. The king is coming. Let's pray.